Hey, listeners of the Bio Report. Before we jump into this week's episode, I wanted to tell you about the BioVerge podcast. This is a new podcast featuring Neil Littman that Levine Media Group is producing. Neil's first guest is Jonathan Thomas, the chairman of the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. In November, California voters approved a $5.5 billion bond measure to extend the life of the Institute. Thomas talks about the future of CIRM and its plans to expand the investments it's making in regenerative medicine. Look for the BioVerge podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, and other popular podcast platforms. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Phosphatin Therapeutics is developing a class of small molecule cancer therapies designed to avoid the problems of drug resistance and toxicity associated with chemotherapies. The company's lead experimental therapy is a first-in-class small molecule that promotes immunogenic cell death, a type of cell death that elicits an immune response. We spoke to Matthew Price, co-founder, executive vice president, and chief operating officer of Fosplatin, about the company's lead therapy, its multiple mechanisms of action, and why it may have benefit in a broad range of cancers. Matt, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Nice to meet you, Danny. I'm glad to be here. We're going to talk about Fosplatin, its lead therapy, which has multiple mechanisms of action, and how it works to enlist the immune system to kill cancer cells. Well, let's start with your lead therapeutic, PT-112, which is a first-in-class pyrophosphate platinum conjugate. Break that down in simple terms. What is it? Well, thank you. That's a, a good question. I think maybe I'll just briefly uh, tell you a little bit about the company and, and how we got to where we are with this molecule, PT-112. Um, Phosplatin Therapeutics was founded by myself and uh, our CEO, Robert Fallon, my fellow co-founder uh, in 2010. And we really built the, the company around this family of compounds that we in-license at the discovery stage, which uh, comprise these uh, a family of these first-in-class pyrophosphate platinum conjugates. And uh, we're based in New York, although these days that, that means something different than it used to. Uh, we have a a nice uh, small office here in Midtown with our management team. Of course, now we're all working remotely. Uh, and we, we worked um, our way through preclinical and early clinical development by uh, running collaborations uh, around the world. Uh, we've actually um, had work ongoing in 15 countries uh, since we started. And um, these are academic uh, collaborations, um, uh, contract research organizations, clinical sites, but also industry collaborators. Um, we we have a, an existing collaboration with Pfizer and their co-development partner, EMD Serono uh, or Merck Darmstadt, um, on one of the combination programs that we're running. Um, and we're still a private company. 
in early phase two development with PT-112. So to your question uh, about PT-112, it, it is a small molecule. And actually, to our knowledge, it's the first anti-cancer agent containing a pyrophosphate. And uh, this has implications on its safety, its pharmacokinetics, uh, its mechanism of action, uh, and even on its, its targeting or its delivery within the body. And I'm sure we can get into that further as we go. I, I generally think of conjugated therapies as linking a targeting mechanism to a, a warhead. I, I take it the way PT-112 works is a bit different. What exactly is conjugated in PT-112 and, and what do each of those components do? It, it's a, a great question. I think we we certainly are not an antibody drug conjugate. I don't want to give that impression. I think we're thinking of conjugation as a you know a medicinal chemistry term that that goes back to uh, certainly before the advent of of ADCs in cancer care. Um, our inventor, uh, the late Rathindra Bose, was actually the first researcher able to successfully link or conjugate a, a pyrophosphate to a, a platinum core molecule. And of course, um, platinum molecules with platinum in their core have been a mainstay of, of cancer care for some time now. And he was really seeking through his work in medicinal chemistry uh, to uh, find a new paradigm for a platinum-containing agent. And he, he did so by conjugating pyrophosphate. And what that does is, uh, because the pyrophosphate is so strongly linked, uh, it remains intact for the most part in the body, very differently from um, many cytotoxic agents and certainly from other platinum-containing agents. Um, pyrophosphate is also benign in the body, uh, and native to healthy cells and cellular respiration. So we're not adding something that's in and of itself toxic. Um, and then you mentioned delivery or targeting mechanism. Actually, in a sense, we believe that the pyrophosphate is, is doing that in part uh, in ways that we didn't expect when we first began the program. Um, to give you an example, it, it can take the drug both to soft tissue cancers, uh, you know, on the basis of systemic distribution of, of the small molecule. But um, we, in our research, have found that it reaches its highest concentrations in the mineral, mineralized bone. And that's something we refer to as osteotropism, or you could call it bone-seeking behavior. And so actually, this does lead to a concept of, uh, of targeting uh, with this drug. And then um, mechanistically, what um, has been shown with small molecule medicinal chemistry, not just by us, um, is that um, uh, changes in the, the ligand or the conjugate um, can really alter the, the downstream mechanistic impact of a, of a given small molecule. And that certainly is the case um, with PT-112. And we've now been able to show, based on the preclinical models that we've used, that it appears to be the most potent uh, inducer of something we call immunogenic cell death. And that's a property that, you know, really brings it square within the, the contemporary era that we're living in of, of cancer immunotherapy. PT-112 works to 
activate the adaptive immune response. What exactly is it doing to accomplish that? It, th this is a key question, and um, there are a lot of uh, efforts out there in, in cancer care to, to solve um, and to perfect the involvement of the immune system in innately or adaptively attacking a tumor. Cancer um, is evolutionary and it tends to find out ways to hide itself from the host immune system and pretend that it's normal. And uh, so it, it can take a, a kind of a priming effect to overcome that cloaking. Uh, that's how we look at what we call immunogenic cell death. And, and this is a field of research that was originated uh, by a, a small number of researchers, first in Paris, uh, one of whom, uh, his name is Lorenzo Galuzzi, uh, is now a PhD researcher here in New York at Weill Cornell Medical College, and we've been working closely with him. We've now published with him on PT112's ability to promote ICD, or immunogenic cell death. And to put it very simply, when PT112 kills a cancer cell, which it does effectively, um, that cell, in a rather rare fashion, uh, can leak out um, what are called danger signals or damage signals. And when a certain number of these come together, it's referred to as a damage-associated molecular pattern. And so these researchers have determined that there's a finite set of these that have to come together. And when they do, they actually bind to dendritic cells, which are uh, like the sentinels, uh, the surveillance of the immune system. And these dendritic cells suddenly realize there's a problem, namely the, the tumor. Uh, and they can then convey this um, information to uh, T cells, which can um, become immune effector cells infiltrating the tumor and, and attacking it as, as cytotoxic or as helper T cells. So you can think of ICD initiated by PT112 is like a match to, to, to light up the immune system within the tumor microenvironment. Is the expectation that PT112 would be used as a monotherapy or would it be used in combination with other immunotherapies or other anti-cancer agents? The, the short answer to that is both. Um, so we've run two phase ones uh, with the monotherapy. Uh, one was our first in human and solid tumors and the other was our first uh, work in hematological oncology with a, a study um, run by the Mayo Clinic in uh, multiple myeloma, which we recently reported. Um, and then the third program is a combination program with a PDL1 immune checkpoint inhibitor, and that's the, the program we've designed together with Pfizer and, and Merck Darmstadt. Uh, so so both the monotherapy and certain combinations, we believe, are, are going to be carried forward. And with the monotherapy, to your question about immune response, we, we were able to see uh, something indicative of ICD happening in human patients when we saw um, two patients in particular on our first in human study have bona fide responses to the drug that persisted for quite a long time after treatment stopped. And that is something that's pretty unusual in the context of, um, call it cytotoxic cancer treatment. Um, often, 
uh, tumors will simply either relapse or will regrow when uh, treatment is withdrawn. And so we took that as a very interesting early bit of evidence that has prompted us to look even further in our go-forward clinical efforts at what, what we call the immune profile of patients being treated with the monotherapy and with the combination. So we'd like to be able to show in time that PT-112 in the clinic stands on its own as, as, an, uh, as an immunotherapy. Um, we've shown that in, in the preclinical work that, that's published. Um, and then, of course, as you pointed out, I mean, contemporary cancer care certainly is moving more and more ultimately towards the use of combinations. And so the effort um, on our part is going to be to um, continue to investigate which combinations should be the right ones uh, with PT-1 and 2. One of the challenges with immunotherapies has been the development of both resistance and, and relapse. What's the expectation that PT-112 might be different than other immunotherapies in this regard? Well, uh, it's a this is difficult biology. So the you know the the more simple way of, of looking at it um, is if we think of of PT one one two as having this priming mechanism, we may be able to initiate uh, a sequence of of immune events that were not present. Um, when other modalities were used. So, you know, for example, immune checkpoint inhibitors have been shown for the most part to have their least likelihood of response when uh, T cells are not present in the tumor to begin with, right? Um, if, if you're taking the breaks off of the T cell interaction with the tumor, which is what checkpoint inhibitors do, um, and the T cells are not present, you have a problem. Um, that's a little bit simplistic, but I think it's a, a, a pretty real issue. And so what we found in our preclinical work with PT-1 and 2 using mouse models where we can actually count the number of immune cells is that this priming mechanism was leading to an increase in the number of, of T cells and immune effector cells, and even to a slight decrease in immunosuppressive cells like regulatory T cells or certain tumor-associated macrophages. And so uh, if we can replicate that kind of understanding in human patients, we'll have, we will have a basis on which to believe that, um, that PT-1 and 2 really can either avoid or, let's say, circumnavigate some of those resistance issues that have been talked about with immunotherapy. Uh PT-112 is in development for multiple cancers. Its lead indications are metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer and, and thymoma, which is a, a rare cancer of the thymus gland. Why those indications as a starting point? The, <laughs> you now have put your finger on the, uh, one, of the, one of the great questions that biotech management has to wrestle with. Danny, um, and I, I would just give you our outlook on it, which is, is you know, maybe different from that of, of others. But um, we, we wrestled with this question during our early phase one work. And, uh, and by the way, I would add multiple myeloma to that list because we, we have completed our phase one in, in multiple myeloma, which, which did have some early evidence of, of drug activity um, that was reported at ASH, uh, the American Society of Hematology, in, in December. So 
Um, how did we come up with those three disease targets? Well, um, in the case of prostate cancer, we had gotten to know these properties of the drug that I've discussed. So principally, the core, um, the core safety profile of the drug, which we learned about during phase one, uh, the tendency of the drug to reach its highest concentrations of mineralized bone, and the immunogenic cell death. And we said, you know, is there a disease type that is lacking safe therapies in the sort of late line of drug development uh, that might go to the bone and require um, immune priming? And prostate cancer, at least in its late stage, what we call MCRPC, so metastatic castration-resistant or, or hormone-resistant prostate cancer, MCRPC, has a, a very clear profile that uh, patients to 80 or 90% in that late stage tend to have metastatic disease in the bone. And we've recently learned through work of Pem Sharma, um, who published uh, from MD Anderson, that these bone metastatic sites of disease are rather uniquely immunosuppressive in, in nature. They create their own immunosuppressive tumor microenvironment. And the field already thought of prostate cancer as what they would call an immune cold disease. So there was not a sort of a ready, readily obvious place for um, immune involvement of the disease to, to suggest that immunotherapy would be exceptionally effective. So we, 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 we use the attributes of the drug to, uh, to decide to target this disease. And then we began to work with wonderful collaborators in the prostate cancer field. Uh, Alan Bryce at the Mayo Clinic had uh, treated our first patients during the phase one and began to uh, help us to craft what the next stage of development might look like. Uh, that now includes uh, folks like Howard Scher here in New York at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, who uh, was the, the chairman of the Prostate Cancer Working Group. Um, and of the genitourinary disease group at, at Memorial, and, and others who have come to, to really support us in these efforts. So that, that's one example. Thymoma is like the, the, the opposite school of thought, which is um, perhaps more empirical. So what did we observe, and what did it tell us about where we should go? And it turns out that in our, the la later part of our phase one development, which was uh, led by Daniel Karp, at MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, who is one of the faculty members in their investigational cancer therapeutics group and was running their phase one uh, center in Houston, uh, had a thymoma patient because that cancer hospital draws patients from far and wide and thymoma is a very rare disease. And we uh, certainly would never have expected to be treating a you know, a real, a real rare disease patient on our first in human study. And that first patient responded so dramatically and for so long that we said to ourselves, we'd be crazy not to try to pursue this in some fashion. And now we have um, uh, a dialogue going with the National Cancer Institute to look at thymoma in a, in a phase two context together. And we're hopeful to launch that study later this year. Ultimately, how broadly applicable do you think PT-112 might be? 
Well, um, we, we'd like to think broadly, but as a biotech company, we have to work with focus, right? <laughs> so these uh, disease areas we're, we're focused on are, are um, clear to us now. And I think we, from among them, we will, we will craft our, um, our late stage, our pivotal, our registrational development, and um, um, certainly hope and believe we will be able to register this as, as a medicine uh, in the U.S. and, and around the world. Um, and then I think the answer to your question ends up being more um, in, in the later stage, perhaps in the post, post-marketing stage of development, where we could look to uh, broaden the use of the drug to other, to other areas of cancer care or other disease types. Um, I think... Um, that, that it's a little too premature for me to talk about those, but there, there are areas where we think uh, opportunities after our initial drug approval should be, should be realistic. Is there some characteristic that makes a particular cancer uh, a good indication for this? I think we, we start, again, the way we look at things is, you know, there's a bedrock of, of safety. So, um, we, we were able to stand on the, on the shoulder of the drug being safe and then survey the landscape. And uh, we have an active phase two now in metastatic uh, CRPC, prostate cancer. Um, that uh, study, I believe, is going to um, um, enroll well and, and be successful and will take us forward. Um, and I described how we identified that candidate. I think um, perhaps uh, referring to multiple myeloma again is another way to, to look at this question. So, you know, there is a logic to how we would approach multiple myeloma. Again, we're bringing an immunogenic mechanism um, essentially to the site of disease in, in the bone, to the origin of disease in the bone in the case of multiple myeloma. So in both of those cases, we're leveraging these attributes of the drug. In the case of myeloma, we have to look forward to much more towards combinatorial therapy because um, that really is the standard of care. There, there isn't much of a, a use of single agent therapies in multiple myeloma. And that, that's like adding another layer to the matrix, right, of how we decide on an indication uh, because we have to understand what the different combination modalities might, might look like. And that's something we're working on right now. And what's known about the drug from studies to date? Well, in in the phase one setting, I you know, I, I have to be careful not to make any any claims about the drug, um, which I'm sure you can appreciate. Um, I can tell you though, and this has now been reported on all three of our phase ones. Um, uh, we have seen across each of those studies um, a consistent. Uh, uh, pattern of safety with PT112, and we have seen evidence preliminary early evidence of activity of the drug that we are confident we can attribute to the drug. Um, and to have a drug that appears to be safe and active in a very heavily pretreated phase one population is the sort of the the first main hurdle that we've we've cleared as a clinical development company, and those. Three studies, um, I can just highlight how and where they were reported to date. So the first in human phase one in solid tumors was reported at uh, 
the European Society of Medical Oncology, ESMO. And that study, um, to our pleasant surprise, was awarded the best poster in its category of developmental therapeutics. And we had something on the order of 50 other phase ones um, in that category. And you can imagine they were from all kinds of different biotech and even big pharma companies. So we really were were like a like a David and Goliath at that stage and quite quite pleased um, to receive that honor. The second of the phase ones to be reported was our combination dose escalation with Pfizer and EMD Serono. That was reported also at ESMO uh, 2020 in an oral presentation this last fall. Um, and then the third of the three phase ones was our multiple myeloma study um, reported at ASH, as I mentioned, in, in December. And we uh, really have, have been fortunate to work with excellent collaborators, even at the very early stage of development. And that, that trend, we, we're very thankful, is, is continuing. The company is private. It's raised $18.4 million in August through a, a private financing. It, it was unclear to me from the press release who funded the company, but was this participation from venture capital firms or was this family offices and high net worth individuals? Well, I apologize if it was unclear. It's probably because the, the, the private nature of the participants is is uh, remains confidential at this stage. But I can answer your, your question more generally. Um, at, yes, we raised $18.4 million. I believe that closed on July 31st last summer. That was a private round, um, taking our total capital raise to date to $56 million. And uh, we have been very fortunate to do that um, initially through several of us uh, founders at the seed stage, and then, of course, through high net worth individuals, um, and then most more recently, in the last four or five years, through global family offices, which have um, become stalwart supporters of ours and have been there to, to help us scale up to this, this stage of clinical development. Um, a, a couple of those groups, um, particularly from Europe, are um, are recognized uh, tech and biotech investors. So we, we have gained some some uh, wonderful expertise from them, both technically but more more so strategically, which has been extremely helpful. And uh, it's our goal this year, probably in the first half of this year, to raise our first institutional capital round with what you would think of as traditional you know, U.S. institutional venture capital or private equity. Um, and we've uh, begun those kinds of discussions already, and I uh, believe we've got a, a program worth, worth backing. Uh, and uh, it has been uh, fortunate for us to be able to operate through into the phase two setting with the kind of backing that, that we have. We've, we've had uh, great support and, and a, a great degree of freedom, I think, to, to learn what we needed to learn about the drug at this stage of development. Now it's really about scaling and executing and getting this, this medicine to patients because it really should be a medicine and not just an investigational agent. And how far do you expect existing funding to take you? Uh, always a good question. Um, we're well-funded now for, for what we're doing. Um, uh, I, I think 
the the plan really is is about scaling. We we have to add depth. We have to add numbers of patients to the program. We have to choose the right uh, parallel paths to have ongoing, um, and to deepen those into into phase two. So, um, twenty twenty one will be a a year for the company to have an inflection point into uh, you know deeper scale of institutional capital, and uh, we we foresee uh, being able to launch a pivotal study after this phase two. Uh, a framework that we're in, and uh, having the drug registered upon uh, upon the success we believe we can have. Matthew Price, co-founder, executive vice president, and chief operating officer of Phosphatin Therapeutics. Matthew, thanks so much for your time today. Danny, it was a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.